0: Good afternoon and welcome to the 185th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of the National AIDS Memorial and COVID-19 with John Cunningham. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest As of today, December 10th, 2020, there are 1,577,875 deaths globally from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 15,526,644 cases in the United States. There are now a total of 291,307 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 287,671 it was reported in the New York Times today that the single day death record from COVID 19 was set yesterday. We seem to be breaking records day by day. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is. Nita Pippins, a mother to AIDS patients, dies at 93. This was published in the New York Times by Stephen Kurutz. It was published May 19th. One day in 1987, Nita Pippins received a call from her only child, Nick, a 33-year-old actor in Manhattan who was dying of AIDS. Mom, I'm in bed. I can't get out of bed, her son told her. It's time. Miss Pippins, a retired nurse living in Pensacola, Florida, put her belongings in a friend's house, took what she could, and moved to New York to care for her son. At age 60, she began an improbable and remarkable second act. Devastated and ashamed by her son's AIDS diagnosis and troubled that he was gay, Miss Pippins initially kept the illness a secret from her family and friends, and she felt out of place in the big city. On breaks while caring for her son, with whom she had moved in, She would sit inside the Nathan's Famous Restaurant, then in Times Square, and repeat, I hate New York, I hate New York, I hate New York. But Miss Pippins nursed her son for three years as AIDS ravaged his body and he went in and out of the hospital. She saw members of the theater group he had founded and residents of their midtown building, Manhattan Plaza, falling sick also. And by the time her son died in 1990, Miss Pippins had been transformed. She became close with her son's gay friends and decided to stay in New York she dedicated herself to AIDS causes. She became a tireless volunteer for Miracle House, a charity that provided out-of-town families of AIDS patients with housing and support. For mothers working through anger, guilt, and sadness, Ms. Pippins served as a parent who had been there. For men estranged from their families, she became a replacement mother, sometimes holding their hands as they died. She didn't come here to be an activist, said Erwin Crute, who met Ms. Pippins through her son's partner, Dennis Daniel and interviewed her for a possible memoir. She was filling a void. She was usually with young men who were dying and was at their request a go between for them and their families. Ms. Pippins died on May 10th at Amsterdam nursing home in Manhattan. She was 93. The cause was complications of the novel coronavirus, Mr. Krut said. At a time when AIDS was widely misunderstood and gay men who suffered from the disease were treated like pariahs, Ms. Pippins called on countless families across the country to come visit their children. Often those parents had little sense of their son's lives in the city or how sick they were. Ms. Pippins would tell them to set aside differences and be present for their child. Some took her advice, some didn't. Ms. Pippins would meet wary out-of-towners at the Port Authority bus terminal or the airport and take them to breakfast at a midtown diner. As a nurse, Ms. Pippins could answer their medical questions. As a mother and someone from a conservative Southern upbringing, she could relate to their fears and concerns of being ostracized back home. At that time, you were shunned if your son died of AIDS or you had AIDS in your family, Ms. Pippins told New York One in 2010. And I wanted to get together and let them know there were other people having the same problem. For Ms. Pippins, her work with AIDS patients was redemptive. I needed to give back, she told Mr. Crute. I needed to have something to do that made me feel better about me. Okay, I'd like to turn to our discussion for today. Let me introduce my guest. I've really been looking forward to this discussion. Let me introduce you to John Cunningham. John Cunningham joined the National AIDS Memorial as executive director in 2009. He's a graduate of the University of California at Berkeley, where he received a degree in political science and organizational behavior. He spent 25 years working for Fortune 500 companies, holding management positions in human resources, risk management, and organizational development. In 1993, he founded and served as president of Golden Gate Granite Group, focusing on human capital management and effectiveness. In 2004, he realigned his career, merging his passion for community activism with his relationship development skills joining the nonprofit Positive Resource Center as director of development. John has held numerous nonprofit board level positions, serving as president of the Castro Community Business Alliance, board chair of the New Hampshire AIDS Foundation, vice president of Folsom Street Events, and board member of Positive Resource Center. John Cunningham, thank you so much for making time to join me today on COVID Calls.
1: Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here.
0: Let me start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling in from and how the pandemic is looking there today
1: um well first even before i do that uh thank you for the story of nina pippins uh you know that uh god bless her and so many like her um so uh where we are today in the bay area um we last weekend um entered shelter in place again as many of your viewers may know the bay area was the first in the country to enter shelter in place um months ago and we're back in it right now uh we have a number of hospitals that have uh, reached their capacity with icu um san francisco as a major metropolitan city uh dodged much of the bullet along the way and was uh was somewhat um, unscathed in some of the capacity relative to capacity in hospitals however um uh, that did not uh, continue and right now uh there's a real struggle in the city uh, relative to what we see to the tra- be the trajectory of the of the epidemic and the capacity of the, of the hospital systems to to take it uh, take it on.
0: So the lockdown there now, the second time, uh, do you get a sense of of fatigue? I mean, it's it's hard to make a sort of scientific assessment of it, but what's your own feeling in talking to people? Are they as committed as they were earlier in the year? It's an awful lot to ask of people to do this twice in one year.
1: Uh, I, th- I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, I think that, you know, I, I, and I hearken back, uh, obviously, to the arc of these two pandemics that intersect. Um, you know, the Bay Area has long been, with the AIDS crisis, looked to by the nation and the world as a, a space and a beacon as to where the solutions come from, whether that be needle exchange back in the day, whether it be PrEP or the like. Um, so the community has always been one that looks after itself and uh, places itself uh, individually um, second in, in looking after others, which I think is is, in, you know, somewhat baked into our society. Um, so I think that this, that the community in general is is leaning in. There are those that are resisting uh, and certain sheriffs in the in California that have um, said that they will not enforce the stay at home order. You know, I think that the state of California divided itself into five regions. Obviously, we're dealing with an enormous state, uh, the the sixth largest uh, GDP in the world. And so um, any of the any of the regions in the state that dip below a 15 percent ICU capacity have to go in, are mandatory to go into shelter in place. Right now, the Bay Area is still at 20. But again, as we did in the early days of the COVID crisis, the, the, the six Bay Area counties decided to proactively enter in there. that. Last night, Monterey County joined that, even though they're not at the 15 percent. But we've got L.A. and Southern California that are sitting in single digits, uh, along with the Imperial Valley and the Central Valley part of the state that are single digits, and then the far northern part of the state is still in uh, the mid-20s, uh, 20% with uh, ICU bad capacity.
0: I'm glad you already made that connection with the AIDS crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic, because um, I've talked with lots of uh, people on COVID calls who I talk with Esther Shurnak, for example, who's a colleague of mine at Drexel and an epidemiologist, and I talk with Peter Chin Hong, who's a physician out there in San Francisco, and they both raised this issue in previous calls about the um, just the background for cities that really dealt with the AIDS pandemic in the '90s and in the 2000s or in the '80s, '90s, and 2000s. Um, a lot of those doctors and researchers were re- very young then, but it seems to have laid in some infrastructure, according to both of them, in different in different ways um, that. They had indicated, maybe, um, I think this is what you were saying too. These are places that are particularly, maybe, well suited to deal with a pandemic and to think about it as a long-term struggle. I don't know what you think about that, but I was intrigued by that observation they both
1: made. Well, you know, I think I think you're you're, you're right. I think we we can harken back to the early days of the AIDS crisis, which is forty years. It's forty years. We're in the forty-year anniversary, right? Um, And unfortunately, similarly to as we are facing COVID today. um, We had a government that chose not to respond. We had a president that chose not to respond. We had a president in the form of Ronald Reagan back in the day that chose uh, not to ever utter the word AIDS during his tenure as president. And when his Surgeon General C. Everett Koop did, he was dismissed. Um, It doesn't matter where we all are on the political spectrum. I think we can see today that that's that's very similar to where we're at. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you look at what occurred in San Francisco, and I'll speak specifically to San Francisco because I know we're going to speak to also the AIDS Memorial Quilt, which was born in San Francisco, and the National AIDS Memorial that was born in San Francisco, I think we can look at uh, how San Francisco responded uh, to the early days of the AIDS crisis. Um, One of our former board members uh, used to use the analogy that we were waiting for the ambulance to come Mm -hmm. in the form of a public response, a government response, a federalized government response, it became clear there was no ambulance coming. We were left to our own devices. Uh, You know, people were dying, people were withering. Uh, It it took a lot longer in those days for people to pass uh, than it does today with COVID. Uh, It was transmitted differently. It wasn't transmitted and it didn't affect somebody's breathing, which is obviously the core of what we do every single moment of every single day we breathe. but San Francisco responded in the early days of the crisis uh, in what has no, been now known and called uh, the San Francisco model of care. And the San Francisco model of care is now used by NGOs around the world um, because of the effectiveness of what it means to have a community engage in coming up with and creating solutions. Uh, to catastrophic events within their own area, whether that's famine, whether that's irrigation for water in Africa or the like. If the community is engaged in the solution process, then after a government agency or funds are put in, it will in all likelihood have greater uh, propensity to continue. And San Francisco, in the first uh, couple of years of the epidemic of the AIDS crisis, uh, there were over 50 uh, organizations created in individuals' living rooms to meet those unmet needs, uh, to feed people, to house people. Uh, Because remember, in those days, the stigma, if you were calling in sick or in any way were suspected by your employer or your landlord of having the grid, the gay-related infectious disease, you would lose your job, you would lose your housing, you would lose everything and be on the street
0: it's amazing so that 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 model um you know born out of that crisis and that stigma attached to it um is one that even getting the history of that and, I, and that's what we're going to be talking about getting that history down getting to where people could actually talk about that experience even that took some time yeah. uh as well but we got to we have to learn from those things i mean as you pointed out now we've had a government this year that um well at least at the top of the government uh, rejected this pandemic, rejected the seriousness of it, and and literally dismissed his own responsibility early on and said, it's not up to me to do anything about it. I mean, that eerie resonance must be in, well, I don't wanna, you tell me how you feel about that.
1: You know, um, and, and before I go on to, to the viewers that are watching this, uh, last week on World AIDS Day, which was December one, a week ago, Tuesday, uh, we hosted a national conversation Um, And any of your viewers can go online. And we had Dr. Fauci and Dr. Ho. Dr. Ho in 1996 was the man of the year. He created and discovered the protease inhibitors. And we honored both Fauci and Ho. They were one of the panels. Uh, We also uh, had brought in to to our conversation activists as well as leaders in uh, major metropolitan cities from across the country. So I think we'll probably touch on that a little bit later. But as you put up on the screen, you can find that at AIDS Memorial. G- to um, so it, there's a lot of PTSD, um, you know, for I lived in the heart of the Castro district in the darkest days of the epidemic. I uh, was a community organizer while while I wasn't working in my full time job. Uh, and that's what people were doing uh, that, you know, you would uh, go home. You would go to the neighbor's house that was ill. You would perhaps bring them food. Uh, you know, the 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 AIDS The AIDS virus was was brutal in the sense that it uh, affected anything from the brain to the lungs to the eyes. So you would go blind, you know, all of those things. And and people began caring for each other and supporting each other and being what what oftentimes are called the logical family versus the biological family, because as you shared uh, with Nina Pippins. Uh, many individuals came to New York or San Francisco or Chicago or wherever and left their uh, their biological roots to find the village that they could be themselves. And so um, people ended up showing up and caring for and helping individuals usher to the other side. Well, that is the definition of a natural disaster. Uh, that is the definition of a tragic event that causes long-term uh, PTSD. So when COVID has come on, it has unearthed and opened up wounds um, that have been um, unhealed and uh, and wrapped and bandaged for a long time. As many as many say that the '80s and the early '90s, I put a lot of that in a box inside of a box inside of a box inside of me, uh, never to open. Well, COVID has forced us to open and look. Um, and that box has the loss of many loved ones. Uh, it has the, the difficulty and tragedy that occurred during those days. And also, um, you know, the, my own journey uh, through that process. So I think you're right. It, it it's, it's forced people to look. Um, and unfortunately, what also has occurred is it's forced people Uh, because of what has occurred and how it's rolled out and how it's uh, transpiring with a lack of a government response, with denialism, with stigma, discrimination, and otherism in that process. Um, You know, when you talk about the stigma, you know, the the AIDS crisis was being stigmatized from the very get-go when it was first called gay-related infectious disease. So label it that. We've had a president that has called this China virus. Um, so again, stigmatizing it upon a per- certain segment of society, and I think we all can can agree that this is a, a biological uh, virus that is does not discriminate, and so we shouldn't discriminate. Um, but with that being the case, uh, it brings still brings up that uh, there's a there's a lack of response. But the difference is, I think it's important to look at that that our president back then. Was not responding because, for whatever his own personal and social beliefs felt that uh, that the, the 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 gay community or the IV drug use community or the sex worker community uh, were were perhaps not worthy of the response. That's not the case here. COVID gets into anybody's lungs. And I, I am so hard pressed to, to really look at this and see that this is lack of response is not because it's a certain segment of society; it's because an individual's ego of not being able to admit that I didn't respond early on in the way that I should have, and/or in wearing a mask or any of those things. It's all driven today from the top by by the by the root of an ego. Yeah,
0: that's. I just want to just pause on that for a second, and and again, sort of really reflect on that connection across time, and, and, and just spend a second with that, and thank you for sharing the way you described that as a PTSD experience, and as you said, opening up wounds that have been wrapped in bandaged for a long time, which I think is, um, you know, it's been an important part of a lot of the discussions I've had on, on COVID calls, is that, um, you know, these kinds of disasters, They don't end when the government says they're over. And, you know, one also hopes that the mental health impacts of COVID, that we can learn sort of previous lessons, some of what you were just saying. Right. You know, the people who have it and survive, the people who had a loved one even who had it and survived, that trauma is real and is going to be part of this experience looking forward.
1: You're exactly right.
0: So, John, if you wouldn't mind, let's go back a little bit, you know, I'd like to hear a little bit about your um, interests and convictions before you started, um, you know, in your current role with the National AIDS Memorial. I know you were, as you described, you were working a day job, sounds like a pretty powerful uh, series of day jobs, and then you were also part of an activist community. Say a little bit about that and then tell us about your kind of life transition into working in nonprofit.
1: Um, so I am I, a gay man uh, and I was blessed to have a supportive family. Um, uh, I came out in my um, early 20s and I was living in in the in the San Francisco Bay Area um, and was at had a, had a very successful career. Um, and you know when you when you look at it so i was uh, doing doing community organizing was part of what was known as the castro community business alliance at the time which the castro for those viewers that are out there it's sort of ground zero of the of the san francisco gay community but many look at it as ground zero of um of the gay community in some ways between san francisco and greenwich village in new york um and so i was uh deeply engaged and involved in what was going on in the community when aids aids hit and i can remember just vividly that uh, in those days there were uh, a lot of open parking spaces Um, there were individuals that were walking on the street that uh, were wasting uh, that looked like they were probably in their 70s or 80s but in reality they were in their 40s or 50s uh, because that's what was going on there was just abject fear when this first came on. No one knew uh, what it was. And I can remember clearly, of course, we didn't have the Internet, um, so we didn't have that communication uh, tool at our disposal for information. And I can remember vividly at what was the, what then Star Pharmacy, which is now Walgreens, that there were posters that were put up with pictures of of individuals with uh, Kaposi sarcoma, the lesions on. Mm-hmm. And people saying we don't know what this is, we don't know what's going mm-hmm. on, we don't know what it's what it's what it's about, and so there was a lot of a lot of fear in the early days of the crisis uh, because of the way um, society was responding. There was a lot of early victimization uh, that that there there was a term that is not used anymore, and that that people that live with HIV and AIDS that is, as I do, I've been living with the virus in my body for well over twenty five years. Um, but, you know, there in the early days, it was people were referred to as AIDS victims, and so you gave your power up there. Um, and, you know, I, I think that what we really saw going on was when we knew that there was not going to be a response, uh, we had already been fighting as a gay community for our own rights in society. Uh, we had recently uh within years prior lost harvey milk to an assassination in our city hall in san francisco yeah. at the same time that the mayor moscone was also assassinated harvey milk was the first gay citywide elected official uh, elected in in the u.s at that time um so we were we were already in a place where we had been fighting for our rights and it basically came down to at this point we were not going to allow uh us to be forgotten in this in this fight and in this crisis. And so that's where the activist thread came in. Um, and that's that's where where the fight began, uh, you know, to to fight for our rights, uh, to fight for government to respond. Uh, that's where ACT UP came into the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some of those those um, legacies are 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 play, starting to play out today of course the problem is is that because of the COVID crisis you its transmissibility is is so easy that we can't march in the streets you know as an old timer i'm i'm looking for i'm looking for the marching and it's not there and hashtags only take you so far um but uh i think the viewers that choose to go look at the uh what we what we presented last week uh, we had three conversations around activism Mm -hmm one we had well we had one conversation around activism that had Cleve jones who was harvey milk's right arm and was the founder of the aids moral quilt and then we had alicia garza who is the co-founder of black lives matters and then we also had kristen ukiza who spoke at the democratic national convention lost her father to covid and said that the only mistake my father ever made was was believing what donald trump was saying and she's created a new activist movement called marked by covid Um, so it, it, it's powerful. That's some of the legacy I believe that 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 we passed
0: along. I was fortunate enough to speak with uh, Kristen or on two occasions. Actually, she gave me a whole hour, which was uh, very generous, as you are. And then she uh, came on just before Thanksgiving and participated in a memorial episode that we did. And and it was. And she's a powerful yeah. speaker and has a long future in front of her. I think as an activist. Um, I just want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls, and today we're talking about the National AIDS Memorial and COVID nineteen. I'm talking with John Cunningham as the executive director. And John, let, tell us a little bit about the history of the National AIDS Memorial, and let's talk a little bit about the the quilt and the sort of memorial movement. I'm everybody is fascinated by it, um, and and what. Kind of lessons can be drawn from it, and also particularly, I'm really interested to know what you think about memorials as a sort of form of political action. And we'll get to all that, but I maybe just sort of ground us a little bit in the history of the organization.
1: Sure. Uh, why don't I start off by sort of uh, uh, stating what our mission is of the organization, mm-hmm. and this is actually a, a mission statement that was uh, we just are entering into a not, new five-year strategic plan. Uh, we brought the quilt into our organization in the last year. Um, And so uh, our new mission statement that was approved several months ago is, by sharing the story of the struggle against HIV and AIDS, we remember in perpetuity the lives lost, we offer healing and hope to survivors, and we inspire new generations of activists in the fight against stigma, denial, and hate for a just future. So that's what we strive to do. And our vision is, our vision is that never again, Will a community be harmed because of fear, silence, discrimination, or stigma? So, um, as I as I said, if we take everybody back um, 40 years ago, uh, there was a tsunami building off the coast of uh, of the Bay Area, or a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico, or tornadoes that were in the Midwest heading towards Chicago, or a new Easter nor'easter going up the East Coast, and I use natural disasters to, again, go back to this is a virus. It's a natural disaster. And how a nation would respond to a natural disaster, such as a weather disaster or an earthquake, um, and how that that is necessary in this particular case. When that tsunami came across here, or the tornadoes hit, uh, the hurricane hit Houston, the tornado Chicago, Boston hit by the nor'easter, the landscape of that society was forever devastated and transformed um and it will never be the same um you know within the gay community we lost a full generation of just amazingly creative individuals passionate people uh that had helped to fight for civil rights and human rights over the years and they were just basically wiped out i can remember that uh, in the early days that uh, you would go out and they would not see young people because they were not coming here uh they didn't it was it was it was too harsh so with that being said 10 years into the epidemic after many nonprofits in san francisco had had cropped up uh, to meet those unmet needs uh it's the prayer of saint francis which is san francisco right uh where there is injustice may we find justice and the like um, 10 years in it was clear that there was a need in the community. Uh, For a space to be created uh, where we could remember those lost, but that also those that had survived could also gather to find solace and support uh, to carry on into the future. Mm. Um, And that is what uh, was how the National AIDS Memorial or at that time, a local grassroots, the AIDS Memorial Grove in Golden Gate Park was created uh golden gate park is the crown jewel park system of san francisco i think it speaks to what was going on at that time that the city leaders gave this 10 acres to a yet to be formed organization because the city leaders were losing their neighbors their co-workers it was just a dark cloud hanging over Uh, just a short two miles away uh, there was a group of individuals that were gathering together Uh, after a March, a candlelight Memorial Day March uh, that took place to remember Harvey Milk. Uh, And at that time, when Cleve Jones ended up at Civic Center, he had pieces of paper that he asked people to write the names of individuals they'd lost in that last year of uh, friends from this new mystery disease. And they put them up on the federal building. And when Cleve stepped back from that and looked up, he said, it looks like a quilt. And he said, I remember my grandmother made quilts. And so he began that process of, of looking at wanting to create a quilt. I'll share a story in a minute that connects to, to, to uh, Speaker Pelosi around that. But um, so in San Francisco, uh, within months of each other and within miles of each other, you know, these two different memorial projects were started. Um, the AIDS Memorial Grove was much more of a quiet respite space. It was a derelict, abandoned, forgotten, and neglected part of Golden Gate Park, much like those young boys that it ended up memorializing. Uh, But it was a place of solace, a place of quiet. It has won numerous um, international landscape, architecture, design awards. Uh, It's got redwood groves and babbling brooks. And then two miles away was an activist tool. It was the quilt. And the quilt was gonna begin the process of taking all those lives that were being lost and being put in numbers and i think that your viewers can we're we're just you just recited the numbers every night we hear the numbers and a memorial is to take those numbers and to make them a life because it is all so much more than just the number Um, and so they began to sew they put a call out and within weeks there were thousands of panels of quilt coming in to the small little shop in the Castro district and these volunteers that had these sewing machines humming together. The quilt, which is now, uh, has over 50,000 individual panels, uh, memorializing over well over 100,000 and they are sewn into quilt blocks of 12 by 12s. Each of the individual panels that go on that, there are eight and they're three by six. They're the size of a grave and you can go again on to uh, acemorrow.org and you can find your way to our virtual quilt display which is going on right now for around the country.
0: So that's I mean remarkable that I mean in the way you frame that story too that it was it came out of a march and Cleve Jones's sort of moment of inspiration in which he saw something there. To think about that and connect it with the AIDS quilt that people know today is it really, sh- it's a testament to the power of these ideas and the passion of these ideas. And that what you said, the memorial is to take the number and make it a life. Um, that's a lot easier said than done, right, John?
1: Right. Well, and that's, that's the power of what, what goes on and that's about storytelling, right? A memorial is about remembering. Remembering is about never forgetting. And the way that we never forget is we continue to tell the stories of those lives lost, which I know so many are trying to do as they've lost their loved ones this year with COVID. Um, you know, the key to this was there was lack of response. So I was gonna say I would share a little bit of this story of Cleve and, uh, and Speaker Pelosi. And again, you can go to our website. And last year when the National AIDS Memorial assumed and took over stewardship of the quilt it was it was handed off uh the formal handoff took place in the library of congress and um uh, the quilt went for for two, nearly two decades to atlanta from san francisco and was in atlanta for two decades before uh we re- reassumed or took stewardship of it and brought it back to the bay area last year um in the but early days was,
0: it was at the cdc or right, it was there to as a sort of a, a mode of speaking to the CDC.
1: Well, it went. It is an opportunity to speak to the CDC, but it was yeah. also an opportunity, again, as making these links to COVID, an opportunity to connect to the African American and Black community of the South. Right. That was. Right. Ravaged because right. of systemic barriers to health outcomes and stigmatization, as well as their own internalized homophobia within those communities. In that way, so it went there for that reason, but it also went there because uh, the Bay Area at that time was in dot com, real estate was expensive, it was requiring more and more space, sure. and it was suffering under uh, financial strain um, because again, it was an activist teaching tool, and oftentimes activists aren't thinking about the money; they're thinking right. about the cause. Sure. So. Sure. When Cleve had first started this, he went to uh, 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 Representative Pelosi's home in San Francisco, which I don't think she'd be hosting a lot of people today. Uh, Not that she wouldn't want to, but for security reasons. And he said, you know, I've got an idea. I want to create a quilt. I want to create a quilt and we're going to memorialize it. And and you'll see this story. Anybody that watches the video of the Library of Congress, she tells the story from the podium. And she said, I looked at Cleve and I said, Cleve, I'm a Catholic schoolgirl. I was taught to darn. I was taught to sew. I was taught to crochet and macrame and all of those kinds of things. And Cleve. No one sews. What are you thinking? It's <laughs> an awful idea. And he said, and he, said and he said, no, this is going to work. I'm going to make it happen. And the genius of this is uh, culturally, quilting sits at the core fabric of our culture. Uh, American quilting is at the core. That allows the quilt to go to red counties and places where otherwise it wouldn't because it'll bring uh, communities out for conversations so then it it started to happen and they um wanted to do a display in dc and the reason they wanted to do a display in dc is they felt they needed to take those lives that were memorialized deeply in these quilt panels, because keep in mind, these quilt panels were created out of guys' jeans or baseball caps or right. gloves. It, it, they, it is. I encourage everybody to go to our website. You can Every single one of these blocks is high res. You can go in and search and look. And if you know somebody that you think has a panel, you can type their name in and it'll bring that panel up to you. But he said, I really want this to go to D.C. And she said, OK, well, we'll meet with a, we'll meet with the uh, Parks Commission. And that was at the time Ronald Reagan. And it was James Watt, who was head of the Department of the Interior. And they said, we'll give you a little corner over here on the mall in Washington. And uh, then Representative Pelosi, who was fearless, said, I don't think you understand the ask. And and she said, no, we want the Mall." And they oh it's going to, it's going to, you know, it's going to kill the grass. And then she looked and she said, you don't understand, mothers are sowing like crazy all over this country. Sowing is happening everywhere. America's into sewing So she went from that place to there. And it ended up, as, you, as your viewers have probably seen, it's had three major visits on the mall in D.C. over time. And it took our dead and put them on the front lawn of America. Then that day, almost every major city's newspaper and on every single uh, major news network. The quilt and AIDS came home to everybody's living room and everybody saw what was going on and they couldn't any longer deny it.
0: I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on how you see the quilt and those discussions. And, and I really am impressed with this idea of the you know the creation of the quilt as a long history in the United States as a community developing tool. Yep. Um, in which people bring whatever they have, uh, you know, they, it's, it's old clothing. It's incredibly close to the body. It's incredibly close to the family. And of course, a quilt itself is meant to provide uh, you know, warmth and shelter right. and care. There's a lot packed into that. But at the same time, and this is back to what you're saying earlier, um, the battles, the culture war in the United States over the place of gay Americans in the polity was fierce. Yep. So you, you'll have this, um, so I guess I want to get back into the politics of that and and sort of ask you how you see the quilt playing a role in that transition. And I don't mean t- to say that homophobia is over in America. Uh, we should never characterize it that way. But there has been a strong transition over my lifetime in terms of, you know, the 1980s, as you described, in which there was stigma. Um and which you know, the president of the United States himself never used the term AIDS and didn't address it. To get to where we are now is a remarkable political journey. How does the quilt factor into that?
1: Well, yeah, you know, um, again, as we. As we launched uh, last week, this World AIDS Day National Quilt Exhibition, normally the quilt would go out to thousands of locations because it goes out, it tours the country. Uh, Any of your viewers, whether it be academic institutions, community groups, if you are interested in bringing the quilt to your community, uh, to both use it as a teaching tool it is perhaps one of the most powerful social justice teaching tools that's out there because what it does is it puts out and speaks to what was going on what happened it opens up conversations uh so if we look at the quilt and the power of what it has today as i said the quilt has the capability to go into communities that otherwise would not be open to having a conversation so right now as we know hiv and aids is still obviously it's not over and it is in the south that it is most prevalent and that it is devastating communities in in Mississippi in Louisiana in those areas so to be able to take the quilt into those communities because remember it, it the, the virus does not discriminate against uh, color of your skin or sexual orientation and if you have a lot of virus in a community it's going to move through the community just like COVID and so to bring the quilt for display into a community To then have prevention uh, uh, expertise there to have conversations to begin to open dialogue in those communities that are being impacted and to bring them together and realize we are in this together that's the power of what the quilt can do you know the quilt has toured the world um the quilt was nominated for the nobel peace prize um and so that's really the power as we see it as we go to go to the future is to continue to take it out as a healing mechanism as well as a mechanism that tells and tells the story of the quilt of the AIDS crisis, but most importantly, tells the story of what it means to be a member of society and the responsibilities that we have to each other, because I hate to say it, but, um, our society has become so selfish Mm -hmm. and the fact that people won't even put on a mask and they say, well, I'm not going to get it. Well, the mask is not about you. It's about your neighbor. Um, you know, and if we can't get to that point, and if we come to the, to the place where we're so just self-absorbed that it's only about me, then the fabric of our society is coming apart at the seams. I,
0: I worry about that uh, a lot right now, and it, I guess it gives me some distress when I think about those lessons that the, that the memorial and the AIDS quilt made possible, made available to people to learn from. You know, people like myself who grew up in the South in a time in, in which homophobia was rampant, and right. to be exposed to that uh, was transformative for me and for many people I know. Right. Uh, and and so I feel like how many times do we have to learn that lesson of compassion? I I I bring that. That's not even a question. It's just my reaction to your what you said. I've just it brings me great distress that we have to be learning that again right now, and we don't seem to be doing a great job at it, frankly.
1: No, I think you're right, you know, and um, as you and I had spoken briefly before we came on the air. Um, you know, what are some of the other lessons that are sitting out there? So there's there's so much collateral damage that happens out of stigma, and discrimination and otherism, especially when it's related uh, to to a, a virus. And we, if you look back. Uh, You know, we know both of these are adversely impacting communities of color because of the distrust, because of the systemic barriers to health outcomes and access to healthcare and, uh, and the like. But if you use the example of what happened in the days of the AIDS crisis, it took a young hemophiliac boy by the name of Ryan White to end up being the face of the AIDS crisis and opening some hearts and minds. And if you look at the tragedy that befell the hemophilia community uh, in the 10-year period, half of the hemophiliacs in America, America died because they were being infected by by blood factor that was derived from blood that was that was got uh, that was that was uh, sourced from prisons uh, and from homeless areas that had high potential for infection. The, the the FDA for, for almost seven years knew that the blood supply at that time was was compromised and allowed it to continue, and the and so you've got this situation that occurred within that community and the tragedy that befell them because there was stigma over over here they would they they were very very upset with the gay community they said if it wasn't for you mm. we get help and they were right not it wasn't that, that that was right but they were right and we've worked to bring those communities together and to heal and worked with genie white and we've memorialized the hemophilia community within i also think it's important to talk about uh the medical side of this uh yep. the medical side of uh treatment who are who are our heroes right now dr anthony fauci well where did dr anthony fauci start it was with aids that was, uh, was where it really began. Dr. David Ho, who, who discovered the protease and how the immune system th- through virology. Um, and they are now on the front lines. Do- obviously, doc- we know what Dr. Fauci is doing. Dr. Ho at the Aaron Diamond AIDS Institute and at Columbia University is working to create a similar treatment for COVID uh, as to what was created for HIV and AIDS through protease. Um, the other side of it is, what were some of the benefits that have come out of the AIDS crisis? Well, visitation rights in hospitals. If you, uh, if you are, are a partner, uh, you know you we we can now marry. I'm married to my husband, so I have rights. We had no rights back then. People right. therefore partners and friends were not allowed in. So again, it was the responsibility of those nurses and doctors to hold the hands of those young men, mainly in the early years that were dying. Similar to COVID, here we are again. Uh, so that so visitation rights getting drugs to market you know we write today the fda looks as though they're going to approve emergency use authorization for the pfizer vaccine right before aids there was no emergency use authorization that came out of the aids crisis Hmm. when you look at compassionate use of a drug how did donald trump rudy giuliani ben carson probably the entire family get access to the monoclonal antibodies, compassionate use. Where did that come from? That came from AIDS because at the time there was no other hope at that time. And AIDS patients said, I'm willing to be the guinea pig. And maybe it'll give me some hope, but most importantly, others may be able to be saved by that. That all comes from the AIDS crisis those solutions, you know, you know, I think it's so important that we all remember that those are some of the legacies, those are some of the some of the of how you remember and memorialize those. I mean, and and, and then lastly, um, we're looking at, you know, individuals were given access to, uh, to life saving drugs, monoclonal antibodies, you know, people who have prestige connections and the like. Um, And I think it's important to remember that uh, Roy Cohn, who was Donald Trump's attorney, and was on the McCarthy trials, uh, and was a gay man, extremely homophobic. Uh, the, the 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 incredible film called *Angels in America*. I encourage anybody to watch. Uh, was his story? Well, he got access to AZT before anybody else did. So it, there are so many parallels going on. I am so hopeful that as we roll out this vaccine for COVID, that there isn't going to be line jumping. Uh, that 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 you know individuals. That are in the class that need it get it, and everybody else gets. Get, everybody else gets in line. Uh, so, I want to oh, remind
0: folks that you're, you're listening, listening to COVID, COVID calls, calls and talking, talking to John, John, John again, Cunningham at the National Man. AIDS Memorial. Um, those historical linkages are are profound, John, and and I appreciate you going through those. I want to just underline one thing. It brings us up to World's Aid World AIDS Day. Um, so you, so Tony Fauci. I was talking with Laura Helmuth yesterday, who's the editor of Scientific American, and we were reflecting on the fact that we're in a time, again, when there are scientists who are household names in America. Uh, And it's not by way that any of us would choose, but there is maybe a small glimmer of hope here um, that we do recenter science and medicine in American life and take seriously um, the power of someone, um, not just as a scientist, but also as a as a cultural figure, as Fauci. So you had, um, he was one of the guests in the World AIDS Day. Um, Correct. Yeah, say a little bit about that and tell us how you had to modify this event for these right. pandemic times we're living in.
1: Uh, so, um, Yeah, so uh, so Tony Fauci, along with David Ho, uh, as I said, David was uh, Time Man- uh, Magazine Man of the Year in 1996, uh, sat on a panel that was moderated by Dr. Jennifer Ashton, uh, who's the ABC News medical correspondent in Good Morning America as well. Um, She moderated what was about a 40-minute conversation between the two of them, taking them back to the early days of the AIDS crisis and bringing it forward. Um, And it was a powerful conversation. And just to to stay with you on your your point there, um, each of the the three panels, um, and I'll touch on the other panels in just a second, The last question that was asked uh, was, you know, those that are viewing, can you provide a message of hope? And both Tony and David both said, we've got to find hope in science. We've got to have hope that that we will not continue to turn into a science denialism uh, nation that discounts science, because we're talking on this platform right now because of science. We're able to connect in these ways because of science. Uh, You know, and if we start discounting that, uh, we're in real trouble. But it was a powerful powerful 40-minute conversation to back up um you know when we first started uh into the COVID in, in april uh, march uh we didn't know how long this was all gonna last right we thought oh you know we'll navigate through in a few months and we'll be to the other side of this it became clear in, in july that, that that what we normally do for world aids day which is a large in-person tented event in the national memorial which is a 10-acre facility uh, that that wasn't going to be possible. So I um, I was going away for two weeks with my husband to Lake Tahoe in a, to to isolate in a cabin in the woods. Mm-hmm. And I tasked my team with to work on three options and to present them to me as to how we were going to execute World AIDS Day at the back end. And this is what they came back with as our top option, is to create a virtual national conversation. And so that virtual national conversation at its core has the tentacles and threads of what we've gone through over the last uh 10 months obviously science and medicine uh we had uh, dr fouching dr ho looking at racial barriers and what uh, the systemic barriers and the george floyd and what our nation has gone through we had four mayors that were moderated uh by tj home also of abc so we had mayor de blasio of new york We had Mayor Lightfoot of Chicago, who's a lesbian and harken back. We had Mayor Robert Garcia of Long Beach, who lost his mother and stepfather to COVID. And then we had Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, uh, who all spoke about the systemic barriers to health outcomes in marginalized communities and communities of color. So that was the second panel. And then the third panel that we had was on activism, creating social movements for change and good. And that was uh, moderated by Alfonso David, who is the uh, CEO of the a, uh, Human Rights Campaign, which is LGBT uh, PAC, and he moderated a conversation, as we've said, with Alicia Garza, uh, Kristen Nygaard, and Cleve Jones, talking about activism and, and how that. So that's that's where we went. It, we. We were so blessed to be able to have so many profound voices yeah. in this, and that's that's one of the silver linings of COVID. We could never have got all those people to come out on an airplane and speak in person, but COVID allows us to do what we're doing right now. I would never have spoken to you before, but COVID has given us this opportunity.
0: Well, I'm I'm glad it was a success and the reach of it will be probably greater than than it would have been otherwise as well and that's that's to the good of course not under the circumstances anybody would have chosen but what a powerful lineup and the way you describe it and and I guess it brings us also back and I want to sort of tap into your knowledge now about what we may see going forward with the covid memorial or COVID memorials. I, I think we have to move past this idea there's going to be some singular COVID memorial, because where would it even be and and uh when should it be erected? Those kind of questions that people are not waiting. Um there are many different powerful memorial initiatives underway. And I guess as you begin to think about those, what kind of advice are you already giving people? So Yeah. And and I want to just want to linger on one part of that, particularly, as you mentioned, the mayors, because um, there is a powerful resonance across time here about a memorial as a way. When we think about memorials, maybe around wars, but the AIDS quilt is a memorial that forces people to reckon with inequality and hate. Right. And. There's a lot of that this year that we've seen. It's evident to many Americans who live with it every day, but to lots of other Americans who have the privilege of not being essential workers or not living in uh, you know, places where there's structural racism that they grapple with every day, this has been a year of education for them. I, what I'm hearing for a lot of people who want COVID memorials is they want those memorials not to be just lists of names, that they need to be spaces of activism. And I, I feel like you have a particular purchase on that, that you can share wisdom there. I wonder if you could take us into your thinking about that.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'd be happy to. And it, it, the springboard to go in there is, um, there is something that Alicia Garza said, uh, co-founder of Black Lives Matter, um, Black Lives Matter, um, during her, during her uh, panel discussion. And it is, death reorganizes you. And I just think about that for a minute, because I think that for COVID, it's reorganized our our nation, it's reorganized our world. Um, You know, um, I think that Eddie Eddie Glau, uh, who is, I believe, out of Princeton, said something profound a couple weeks ago, uh, talking about, you know, where things are at in our nation right now regarding social fabric and what this has pulled the curtain back to. And it's pulled the curtain back that our social contract with each other uh, was not as strong, I guess, as we thought. Um, and the last time our nation really faced this was when we had, had significant death and loss. And that was a civil war. And our nation then started to rebuild itself and rebuild its contract and its agreement with each, with each other. So when you look at a, at a memorial, I think it's important. When you look at the AIDS Memorial projects, whether it be the National AIDS Memorial, which is a location-based or the AIDS Memorial quilt, uh, which is a artifact based it's the largest community art project ever created on earth. Um, those memorial projects were created in the middle of what you were memorializing. I challenge everybody to think about that. Uh, what other memorials can you find that were created in the in the middle? There's some to slavery, that were done while slavery was still in existence. But the power of what that means is, is that those are, that are creating it for a society that's still going through it, it ends up having a significant ownership to what that is about. Because when you're looking at the COVID story or you're looking at the AIDS story, just as one, and I will never want to draw direct parallels, but when you look at the tragedy of the Holocaust, that's a societal story and the the fact of the matter is that the holocaust memorials that have been created are so that never again so that never again well i've got to say for god's sakes never again should we stigmatize a disease or a virus because look what it's done it's just ravaged and it's not even near over and so i think that the i actually corresponded this morning with a woman from seattle that has got a quilting community that wants to start creating COVID Quilt. Mm-hmm. And there's, I've had a couple of correspondence with others around, around the country. Some have come to us and said, can we jump on your coattails here and can you start doing a COVID? And that's not our job. Our job is to help to inspire and to help to continue that work. But it's really that communities. And it's got to be the Johnny Appleseed, because the process that we're looking at in a memorial is to tell the stories of those lives tragically lost. And in the process of loved ones telling those stories, They get to heal, but most importantly, they get to honor the lives lost by telling truth to future generations. The quilt continues to receive hundreds of panels every year, hundreds of those that were lost in the day, but have not been memorialized. And they come to us in a couple of unique ways. Some of them come to us from from nieces and nephews. That the grandparents have since since died, who would never speak aloud, much much like mm. the story, um, and her her growth, and so the nieces and nephews want to remember Uncle Bobby uh, because they knew he was a special person. They maybe never met him, and so they today are making panels to somehow honor that. The other panels are coming to us in a very unique way as well. That those grandparents or those parents of the lost fallen loved one. Made a panel for their son and they poured their love into it and they couldn't give it up. And so then they've passed and the family finds it on a shelf in the closet. And so it now comes to us. I think that that's the power. This is about communities coming together. Uh, we started the Call My Name project into the South, which is focused on the African-American and black community, to work with communities of faith in those communities to bring up and unearth those young men that were lost to AIDS. But that the African-American community that has a great deal of of internalized homophobia within it, uh, never, never remembered. And so what that Call My Name project is those young boys from the grave saying, just please call my name, honor me because that's what happens when the quilt is on display or when individuals are at the AIDS Memorial is it is a reading of names. But I, I, I think it's a unique thing historically and uh, sociologically of memorials being created in the middle of what you're memorializing.
0: So it sounds like, I mean, so first of all, your advice here is nobody should be waiting until this is somehow over, but that there's something powerful about people, the resonance there of the beginning, the making, the thinking about it as part of the experience of the grieving. but but also, just to come back because it's really important what you said, I think, we have this notion that you know, memorials and monuments live in Washington. Maybe they live in in a state house, but you know, Washington, and even when the AIDS quilt, um, maybe in one of its you said it's been to the national Mall three times, and those were powerful moments for it. Right. Um, but. The making of it is individual. It's in its families making it. It's right. friends, loved ones making it. And I'm assuming communities coming together and making right. panels as well. And the way you describe that they still come in is—I hadn't heard that. It's really astounding and, and remarkable. Um, that's quite. That's that's not the way we have often been taught to think about how we mark important events in American history. All right. That. If to really mark those events, you got to have it's got to be the Lincoln Memorial. It's got to be the Vietnam Veterans Memorial with the names carved in stone. Um, You're talking about something very different, a very different approach, and and it also, I wonder about that a little bit because it strikes me that what you're describing is the memorial is is the conversation. Correct. And the time of that creation, so that's a learning moment. And the quilt, of course, the quilt is enormously valuable, but maybe that's not the most valuable part of it. It's the making. That's the valuable part.
1: It's the making, and then it's the sharing, right? Yeah. It's uh, it is it. It's about healing, uh, and you know, right now within the COVID community and our nation, there is such unresolved uh, grief. Uh, because so many family members were unable to, in any way, be close to their loved one at the end, um, you know, and so that process of being able to find a way to connect with that, um, I would venture to say that 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 doctors and nurses will start creating panels to love to the loved ones they nurse to the end, um, because that's the power. It's the power of individuals coming together working together to remember and memorialize because that's where the healing happens. A memorial is about telling a story, but it's also about healing. And there's so much unresolved uh, grief and healing out there. We're in the process of looking at in our new strategic plan, uh, creating a national registry of the names lost because there are over nearly 700,000 individuals in the U.S. estimated that have died of AIDS. Of course, it's probably well over a million because many didn't die of AIDS in the early years. They died of cancer or they died whatever their family wanted to say. Much like the Shoah Project and or at Yad Vashem, uh, the tragedy and the disaster that happened and befell through the Holocaust, they're still trying to to catalog everybody that was lost. Well, this is going to be an ongoing thing for, for us as well. And COVID will find the same. Right. Because uh, many people are dying from other causes that that would not have otherwise died uh, were not for covid. And that that can be that they they got covid before it was all diagnosed or they died of a heart attack because they couldn't get into the hospital Mm -hmm. because it was full. Right. You know, and it also. Yeah. yeah. So it, it is it is the act. You know the national aids memorial has over a quarter million volunteer hours that were dedicated to the creation of the space this memorial was not created by a government agency right. that decided to build something yeah, like architectural jury and all of that That's sort right. of thing this was created right. by the community with the community because as i like to say the healing happened on either side of the shovel as they were working to till the land transfer the landscape because as i say the healing happened not only on either side of the landscape, but as that landscape was transformed, so were the lives of the individuals doing the work.
0: We're almost up on time, but I want to just come back to one one thing so that, because um, I, I want to linger on um, the challenge of this. It's been surprising, I think, to many people that, um, and Kristen Urquiza has talked about this, um, there have been pushback against Memorial this year. I mean, frankly, there's been pushback from the top of our government as to even the death count. Right. And so, you know, I think it's important, and to give you a chance to comment on this, the quilt has not been welcomed in every community and by every politician. Um, the memorial acts um, around, you know, AIDS has, I mean, there's still still some right. Right. probably who push back on it, who deny And and I guess you, you know, I think you must have some special wisdom there to share with people who want to make COVID memorials, because I think it's going to be a long road, frankly. And I've seen things in America this year. I wouldn't think anything would still surprise me. But when you said this earlier, you know, that that social contract is frayed a little bit. Um, There's going to be pushback against COVID memorials. I think there already has been. Yeah. How can you? How does solidarity work in this in this case? I mean, it's not just going to be a case where people are going to make a great memorial and everybody's going to say, "Great, we honor those dead." We've seen surprising reluctance, I think.
1: You know, I think yeah, I, I think you're exactly right, and I think it's um, there's not an either or. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, the quilt is a is a national treasure, and it does speak uh, to a nation because there are blocks and panels from every state. The National AIDS Memorial received federal designation from the federal government as a result of the uh, bill, a bill of Congress and signed into law by President Clinton, but also there are AIDS memorials. There are well over 150 of them around the country in small communities that have a rose garden. Or in the case of New York, they've now got the AIDS Memorial in New York, or the new one going in in Seattle called the AIDS Memorial Pathway, or West Hollywood, California, where there's an AIDS monument, or Los Muros, which is in in West LA, which is dedicated mainly to the Latin community that was impacted. So the reality of it is, is yes, I hope there will be some sort of a a profound national story, but on the other, or, or Memorial, but on the other side, communities need to do what communities need to do and to to honor the lives lost and honor those also that help help serve them in the in the form again of doctors and nurses, because that's where the heroes of COVID are as they were with AIDS, it was those doctors and nurses that entered those rooms when no one else would Um, and I'll I'll just leave leave your viewers with one thing, one of our board members. uh, who lives in Austin, Texas, and uh, has been living with AIDS for a very long time. He recalls when he was uh, in Atlanta in the hospital and didn't, didn't think he would live, running with about 107 degree temperature, packed in ice to keep him alive. Uh, they had taken him out. He was in his room. And a nurse walked in without face masks, without gloves, without protective equipment, put her hand on his shoulder and said, honey, you're going to be okay. It gave him the will to continue on. And he now runs an amazing organization and is part of our community in a profound way. We give each other help and and hope through individual acts of kindness. So if there's anything we can do is to continue to share kindness with others.
0: That's a tremendous story. And and as we close out, um, maybe, John, I've just put back up the www.aidsmemorial.org Slash WAD2020 for people who want to see these videos that you've collected there from your uh, online event that you had this year because of COVID, um, and just um, maybe tell us what else we'll find at the website as we as we close out.
1: Yeah, so I would I would actually um, uh, uh, encourage everybody to take the backslash WAD2020 off and just go straight to the website at this point. Asmorial.org. Uh, it is a storytelling platform because, again, that's what what memorials are about, is keeping the, the lives alive through storytelling. It talks about the heroes. It talks about those that have been involved over the decades uh, from the AIDS crisis, as well as activists, as well as politicians, as well as others. It also, uh, we have the Pedro Zamora Young Leader Scholarship Program. Some may remember Pedro Zamora was in uh, Season 2 of The Real World. He was a uh, Latin AIDS activist from South Florida and uh, died uh, just two weeks after the airing of the last episode of Season 2. We scholarship young young leaders of the future on college campuses uh, who are doing groundbreaking work in the area of HIV and AIDS prevention, social justice, human rights, uh, reproductive health. Um, And then we also uh, continue to do our work as it relates to to the quilt. So you'll find a myriad of of really dynamic um, um, information uh, on that site. We just relaunched it earlier this year. It was, again, something we were able to do during COVID because we were somewhat all isolated. And it's a powerful storytelling platform.
0: Well, just a reminder, everybody should check that out. And I think you're going to be, I know you're, you're busy in an ordinary year. But it strikes me you're going to be incredibly busy uh, going into next year, John, as people trying to make sense of COVID and trying to make sense of it by way of this history that we've been discussing today of AIDS and and the AIDS Memorial and the AIDS Quilt. I want to thank you for joining me today. And I want to remind everybody that you can catch COVID calls every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow we'll be talking about the um, saga of uh, COVID testing, and we we'll have talking about that from multiple different national perspectives with historian Shobita Partha Sarathi, who's at the University of Michigan. So please do join me for that. And John, thanks a million for this uh, call today. Just a, a wonderful hour of learning for me and for the others who are, who are watching.
1: Thank you so much, Scott. And again, for anybody that would be interested, when we can gather again, of bringing the quilt to your community, we're happy to bring it to your community. Uh, so AIDSMemorial.org. you can help to do, bring it to your town.
0: Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock.
1: Thank you.